Uh, when I was the director of executive ministries in Dallas, Texas, I worked with a man who was worth millions of dollars. But he got involved with a woman at his work as the CEO of this great company. Before you know it, he was in an adulterous relationship. And before you know it, the home was broken up. And before you know it, she had a lot of his money. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the book of Romans, we have devoted the past few weeks to chapter 6, and last week, Pastor Brogy began mining the truths of verses 15 to 23 in a message entitled, Whose Slave Are You? As we pick up today, we look at how it is, as verse 16 says, that we are slaves of the one we obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. When you obey the impulses of the old fallen Adamic nature, it results in a slavery. You're not just sinning. We are building a bad habit. For example, you go and you watch some central movie, or you read some romance novel, or you watch some dirty television show. What does your fallen sinful nature say? It says, I want more. You become a slave of the one whom you obey. Likewise, the opposite is true. When you present yourself to God as a slave to righteousness, then you become a slave of righteousness. And so the old man, the dirty old man, the dumb old man, the deceitful old man, the delinquent old man, the deranged old man, and we, dis- we studied that old man earlier, if you're with us, he says, go ahead and watch the movie. You're under grace. It doesn't really matter. You're saved. You're headed for heaven. And you can always confess it later. But when you realize something that is now true of you, that you're totally identified with Christ, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, when you consider and reckon that to be true, and you say, no, I'm going to yield myself and present myself to God as a slave of righteousness. Now, he's going to describe that power, the need for it in chapter 7, the reality of it in chapter 8. But it is possible because of our new slavery and our new identification with Jesus Christ. So Paul says, don't you know that you become a slave of the one whom you obey? Let me illustrate it. Hold your finger here and turn to the book of Proverbs, if you will. If you're new to the Bible, go to about dead center in your Bible. You'll find the Psalms. And right to the right of Psalms, you'll find the book of Proverbs. And go to Proverbs chapter 5. The book of Proverbs has three principal divisions. Chapters 1 through 9 deal with the role of wisdom. Chapters 10 through 24 deals with the reach of wisdom. And chapters 25 to the end of the book deals with the reign of wisdom. So he opens up in chapter 1 with an invitation to wisdom. And chapter 2 with the deliverance of wisdom. And chapter 3 with the fruit of wisdom. And chapter 4, like a daddy putting his arm around his son. And he says, son, acquire wisdom. Watch over your heart because out of it flow the issues of life. And then in chapter 5, he's going to help him to see what wisdom does in terms of avoiding scandal in his life. Chapter 5, notice if you will, verse 1, Solomon reminds us of the same truth that you become a slave of the one whom you obey. My son, give attention to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. And there are families today that are falling apart 
for a lack of wisdom, for a lack of knowledge, for a lack of discretion, for a lack of understanding. Then he says in verse 3, for the lips of an adulteress strip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. It's a parallelism here. As in the Song of Solomon, when he speaks of her lips, he's not speaking of her kisses. Scripture interprets Scripture. And so in Solomon chapter 4, he tells us that her lips refers here to her words. He's speaking here of sweet talk, flirtatious talk, the kind of talk that should only happen between a husband and a wife. And Solomon, of course, is speaking to his son. And uh, if he were speaking to his daughter, he might have given the man's line. But understand that most immoral relationships don't start with the physical. They start with words, flirtatious words. And people will come to the point where they can say, how can anything be so wrong when it feels so wonderful? Verse 17 of chapter 20, he will say, bread obtained by falsehood is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be filled with gravel. And Solomon wants his son to spend some time getting wisdom, discretion, knowledge, and understanding. And one key to that is to soak your mind in the Bible. In the chapter 6, the next chapter, in verse 20, he will say, My son, observe the commandment of your father, and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you're awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment, he says here, is a lamp, and the teaching is light. And reproofs for discipline are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue, the dripping lips of the adulteress. There's nothing, men and women, that will protect you more from the sin of infidelity than loading yourself up on the Word of God. Every now and then we hear of some pastor, some deacon, some religious leader, some church member who gets caught up in some immoral relationship, and we say, oh, look how far from grace he has fallen. No, that's not it at all. It's not how far he fell, it's how low he was living. Adultery doesn't just happen. It's a process that leads up to it. I've told you before that most marriages don't suffer from a blowout, they, they suffer from a slow leak. There's a slow process where there has been a, a series of decisions that we've made, things that we are willing to listen to and watch and expose ourselves to, and then the flirtatious words of the adulteress come and we become victims of her prey. Solomon warns here in verse 4 of chapter 5, he says, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps lay hold of Sheol. What a deadly power sex sin has over the life of the person who pursues it outside of marriage. And by marriage, I mean between a man and a woman, because that's the only way God defines it. But there are some built-in judgments that this sin has. It fascinates, but then it assassinates. It thrills you, but then it kills you. Her feet go down to death. This sin brings death. Death to joy, death to purity, death to your marriage vow, death to holiness, death to your home. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of Sheol. Sheol is the Old Testament word for the place of the grave. 
It just means the place of the grave. But contextually in the Old Testament, it's used of two compartments of Sheol. There's righteous Sheol, what the New Testament calls Abraham's bosom, where an Old Testament saint went, awaiting the ascension of Christ when he would empty out Old Testament paradise and bring them into New Testament paradise. But then there's unrighteous Sheol. And so the King James says her feet go down to Death, her steps lay hold of hell. They don't translate the word, they interpret the word, but contextually they interpret it properly because he's talking about that place where an unbeliever goes. Today, absent from the body, present with the Lord for the believer. Absent from the body, present in Hades or hell. And someday Hades will be emptied out and it will all be cast into the eternal lake of fire according to Revelation 20. And so I want to tell you, God wants you to know that this sin brings death, death in this life, and ultimately, if a person remains in rebellion and unforgiveness by Jesus Christ, they will experience what the Bible calls the second death. Look now at verse 7. Now then, my sons, listen to me, and do, do, do not depart from the words of my mouth. Now he goes from his son to all of us, to sons and daughters. Listen to God's wisdom. Because you will become again a slave of the one whom you obey. Look at the exhortation in verse 8. Keep your way far from her. And do not go the n- near the door of her house. I hope every man in this church has verse 8 underlined. You say, but pastor, I have a good marriage. Or you're saying, pastor, I'm single. And I'm living a pure life. I don't think I need to hear this exhortation. You've heard me quote Oswald Chambers many times. He wrote over five decades ago that an unguarded strength is a double weakness. An unguarded strength is a double weakness. Paul will tell the Corinthians, let him who thinks he stand be careful lest he fall. If you ever think you can get to the place where you will never, ever, ever do that again, friend, you're tempting the devil to tempt you. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Don't even walk past her house. Again, we are to present our members, our feet, our hands, our eyes, our ears as slaves to righteousness. Why? Because you become a slave of the one whom you obey. Paul will tell young Timothy, the pastor, flee from youthful lusts. That's the negative. And pursue. Here's the positive. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Put away these things, but with God's people in a Bible-believing, Christ-centered, Bible-preaching church, pursue righteousness, faith, and peace. You don't go to places where you can be tempted. You don't visit certain internet sites that will tentilate you. You don't go to certain bar rooms where immorality takes place. The devil knows that many a person, when they take some alcohol, they'll do things that they never thought they would otherwise do. You run from it. You don't linger in certain places. Look at verse 9. Lest lest you give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one, lest strangers be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods go to the house of an alien... The price of infidelity is high. Everything you worked for, everything you sweated for may go to another person. When I was the executive of, uh, when I was the director of executive ministries in Dallas, Texas, 
I worked with a man who was worth millions of dollars, but he got involved with a woman at his work as the CEO of this great company. Before you know it, he was in an adulterous relationship, and before you know it, the home was broken up, and before you know it, she had a lot of his money. And how did it start? With flirtatious words. Very slowly often, very subtly, it will drain you. Your goods will go to someone else. It will disease you. Look now at verse 11, and you groan at your latter end when your flesh and your body are consumed. So our society is now covered over with sexually transmitted diseases, with AIDS, and now even the most common gonorrhea that came out a few weeks ago is not responding to antibiotics as it always has. Our government is spending literally billions of dollars trying to prevent these sexually transmitted diseases. Listen, I can save our government hundreds of millions of dollars. Just obey this book. You will never, ever, ever get some sexual transmitted disease if you do what God says. One man, one woman, until death separates us. It is a closed system as God designed it. Obey this book. Look at verse 12. And you say, oh, how I have hated instruction and my heart spurned reproof. And I have not listened to the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I fear that someone will later tell me, oh, why didn't I listen to my pastor when he was preaching against this? Why didn't I obey the word of God? The Living Bible paraphrases it. Oh, why wouldn't I take the advice? Why was I so stupid? Satan will make sin look so attractive to you, but when you finally get what you want, you won't want what you got. That's, he's no fool. He will make you a slave, my friend. Verse 14, I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. One paraphrase says, for now I must face public disgrace. Usually you can't hide this sin. Sooner or later someone finds out, your wife, your husband, your children, your co-workers, your friends. And even if no one else finds out, God sees it. And so the exhortation, he wants us to know because this sin will enslave you, it will dominate you, it will control your life. Verse 15, drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed to broad streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated with her love. Don't ever get the idea that obeying God's law is going to shortchange you, that you're going to miss out. You can break God's laws, but you will be broken by them ultimately. I hope every young person is listening to me. Our government gave permission this week for young girls. They can be 10 years old and they go in and get the plan B pill, as they call it. God is not trying to keep from you. He's trying to keep something for you. Whenever God says don't do something, he's trying to protect you. He's trying to provide the very best for you. Save yourself from the heartache and the humiliation. Look at verse 20. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. 
His own iniquities will capture the wicked. He will be held by the cords of his sin. That's what this sin does. It changes you. It enslaves you. This, again, is an illustration of what we're studying in Romans 6, that you become a slave of the one whom you obey. And so the chapter ends in verse 23. He will die for lack of instruction. And in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. There's moral death. There's spiritual death. And ultimately, there's eternal death, the second death. Now go back to Romans chapter 6, if you will. Back in Romans 6, he's writing to God's people, to believers. And the death that he's speaking of in verse 16 is alienation from God. When a true child of God disobeys, he cannot sever his eternal relationship with God. But he can break his fellowship with God. And that results in a loss of blessing, a loss of joy, a loss of peace, a loss of love, a loss of direction, a loss of spiritual growth. And it invites spiritual discipline because those whom the Lord loves, he will discipline. Someone emailed me this week, and they, it's a young person, and, and the young person said, well, my mother said that since she was saved and she was going to heaven and she couldn't lose her salvation, that it was okay for her to participate in the things of the world and that she was going to enjoy herself. Listen, if you're thinking that way this morning, you probably have never been saved, and you'll see that before this text is over. So God's presentation of two slaveries. Secondly, I want us to see God's contrast between two slaveries. God's contrast, point Roman numeral 2 there in your outline. Look at verse 17 and notice how it begins. But thanks be to God. Paul's heart is now just filled with praise. He goes and he begins to praise the Lord God. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin. See, we're born in sin. In sin was I conceived, the psalmist said. I was shaped in iniquity. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. At your conversion, Paul said, I delivered to you this, the faith given to the saints once and for all. I delivered to you a form of teaching. That happened the moment you were saved. You became a new creation. You became a new creature, another text says. In another place, you received a new heart. Paul is saying that once you became a believer, notice I have it underlined in my Bible, you became obedient from the heart. It's not I'm doing this because I have to, it's I'm doing this because I get to. Some of you are here today because you have to be. You feel guilty if you don't come to church. Some of you, because you've met Christ and you're walking with him in a spirit-filled fashion, you're here because you want to be. It's not I have to, I get to, and you're excited about it. Obedient from the heart to what? to that form of teaching to which you were committed. What's he talking about when he speaks of that form of teaching? You see the word form? It's the Greek word tupos. We get our word type from it. We've studied types before in the Bible. We're in the Old Testament. God gives an illustration of something that prefigures what Jesus Christ, what Messiah would ultimately do. It's also used in the New Testament to describe a standard or a pattern of teaching or a manner or a fashion to that manner or a pattern or standard or form of teaching to which you are committed. Outside of the Bible, the Greek word tupos is used of the impression on a seal. It's used of the imprint on, from a branding iron. It's used of uh, the indentation of a footprint. Or it's used of the marks left by someone's teeth when they bite into something. 
It's also used outside of the Bible of something that is molded, something that's casted into a mold, much like we would take a, a jello mold and we'd pour the jello into it and it's cast into a certain shape. Paul is saying when you get saved, God begins a process in which you are formed, you are shaped, you are fashioned by teaching, teaching that you could not receive prior to your conversion. You see, an unbeliever can understand enough to be saved, and that's as far as it goes. And some never get that because they won't respond to the light God has given them. Someone asked me on Thursday night, Pastor, if salvation is only through Jesus Christ, what about the person who's never heard about Jesus Christ? And if you don't know the answer to that, come to our discovery class. Because I'm not going to answer it for you this morning. But here's the point. That when you get saved, you have a new ability. Why? Because a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He can't appraise them. He can't receive them because they're spiritually received and appraised. But when you get a new heart, you get the mind of Christ, and you have a new ability in which to receive truth. So what is it that molds us? The truth, the doctrine, the teaching. When we come to Romans chapter 12, he'll tell us to present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. And then he'll say, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed through the renewing of your minds. J.B. Phillips renders it, don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within. Verse 17 is a great thought because God is saying, as a child of God, you're being molded, you're being shaped by truth. That's why pastors are supposed to feed the flock of God with the word of God. We are to teach truth. Verse 18, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves... Of righteousness. Now, verses 12 and 13 teach you are still capable of sin, but in our conversion, God decisively rescued us from the lordship of sin into the lordship of God. Paul will tell the church at Colossus, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and delivered us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. So, two slaveries, one by natural birth, the other by a spiritual birth. So having described the beginning of these two slaveries, he now describes their development. Notice verse 19. He begins, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Paul's giving an apology of sorts here. He's having to use human terms because it's difficult to use divine terms in a way that our puny little finite minds can embrace it. And so he's telling us that this analogy between masters and slaves, the Holy Spirit is giving it to him under the inspiration of the Spirit. But the Spirit of God through Paul wants us to know that it's an inadequate analogy. Because while God needs to use it to describe our past life and our present life, our present life is so much more. Jesus, for instance, will say in John 15 and verse 15, No longer. Do I call you slaves? For the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. And so this master-slave relationship doesn't totally conjure up all that we have in Christ. And so in John 15, it's one of the great not this, but this in the Bible. Not this exclusively, but this. You are not slaves only, but we are slaves. And Jesus taught that in the Gospels. But we're more than slaves. 
We are friends of the Lord. But he wants to use this analogy right now because he wants us to get it and because of the weakness of our flesh. Notice what he says. For just as, circle that word just as in your Bible. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now, circle the word so now, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Just as, so now. God's trying to help us to understand how it is practically that these two slaveries will develop. Each slavery will develop, neither slavery will stand still. Each slavery is going to develop, neither is going to stand still. So just as you want, under the old system, before you were converted, you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness. That only resulted in further lawlessness because the wages of sin is more sin. Now you present yourselves as slaves to righteousness. Be just as enthusiastic, Paul is saying, as yielding to Jesus as Lord as you once yielded to your old sin nature. Or someone in the 16th century said, be as good a saint as you once were a sinner. I wish I could tell you that I never had a drop of alcohol in my life. But I did. My senior year in high school, I drank. I had not met Jesus Christ as my Savior. My freshman year in college, I heard the plan of salvation. And early on, within a month, as we began to uh, get engaged in Bible study, I began to learn what the Bible said about alcohol. And I am absolutely convinced then, as I am now, both by precept and by principle, that God's Word teaches abstinence. As a general principle, the Bible teaches abstinence. And I say as a general principle because there are some exceptions. Jesus, for instance, in the parable of the Good Samaritan said that you could take wine and you could, you could pour it on a sore. Why? Because it would kill the bacteria in the sore. Or in Proverbs 31, God says you can give it to a dying, despairing man in the same way that we would give morphine today to a dying, despairing man. Not to make him a drug addict, but to, as an act of, of mercy to relieve his suffering, to relieve his pain. I have sermons dealing with abstinence. Some of you don't want to hear them. You would say, don't confuse me with the truth. Hmm? And we have a lot of popular pastors today. Probably the most popular young pastor in our nation is teaching our young people that it is okay to drink. And so he gives his testimony online that for 30 years he never touched a drop of alcohol. And then he was studying John chapter 2 and God convicted him that he should drink. And now he drinks wine with his pizza and he has cocktails with his wife. I studied John chapter 2 and I was absolutely convinced that I shouldn't drink. He has an errant interpretation, just as he does on this filthy book that he's published on sex, telling heterosexual couples they should do things that homosexual couples do. His mind was planted in filth and pornography, and it has influenced his teaching. Now listen to me. Alcohol is a bad thing. And again, if you're not convinced by it, you listen to some of my sermons. I want you to be convinced from the Word of God. And don't write me off as some ignorant rube. I went through a four-year master's program and a three-year doctoral program. And I've studied this issue up one side, down the other. And there are good reasons why 30 years ago, every leading evangelical pastor in this nation taught that Christians should abstain. 
If you'd like to hear this or any of the messages from our series in the Book of Romans, why not download the Search the Scriptures app for iPhones, iPads, and Android devices. Just visit your iTunes Store or Google Play Store and search for Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy. You can also listen to or download this or any of our Search the Scriptures studies from our website, searchthescriptures.org. And of course, if you would like a CD or DVD copy, you can always call us at 877-787-7478 and request program ROM30 entitled, Whose Slave Are You? Tomorrow we conclude our look at Whose Slave Are You? Join us then as we search the scriptures.